So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, but there was several years ago, there was a pastor who stood up in front of his congregation and to give a report about how they were doing. It's a very simple report, and it went like this. Good news, we, we have not gotten smaller. Bad news, we've not gotten bigger. We're holding it about 120 people. We don't have a lot of money to buy a church property, so we're going to continue to rent, which we're happy to do so. We know that God has called us to take the gospel to the city, but we don't know exactly how to do that. Our leaders are young, right? They're kind of on-the-job training. We, they've never been a part of a church before, so we're kind of learning as we go. Until then, we're just going to keep praying. We're going to keep praying and waiting for the Lord to lead us and to show us how we are to do this, how we're to make a difference in the city. He pointed out that none of them were from the city. They were all kind of from a, a city up north, and they were coming down here. But the city did not really like them, did not want them there, did not like this message of the gospel spread. It's a familiar story that many churches have talked about, saying we know what God has called us to do, but how do we do it? But the church that I was mentioning was the very first church, the church of Jerusalem, the church of Acts, of the apostles. It was about 120 people, and they had great leaders, but they were young. None of them had been a part of a church. How do they take this message of the gospel into Jerusalem? They're all from Galilee, right? They're, they're kind of from the country, and here they are in the big city. How do they take this message? They knew that God had told them to go be witnesses, to take this message of the gospel, to take the message of Jesus, to go change the world. But how would they do it? They knew they needed to make disciples, but how? What would that look like? For many churches, if they were asking the same question, they would come up with a whole list of things that they would need to do. All right, in order to, to, to you know, really change the world, here's what we need. We need some better, you know, like, like dynamic preaching, right? We need to get some really good preaching. We need some passionate worship. We need some real competent leaders. We need friendlier people. We need good Bible studies and good programs, Right, a good youth program and children's program. This is what we need to do. So let's do that, and then they'll come. But we notice that those things weren't part of the early church's plan. When they said, hey, we need to take this message out, their response was, we'll keep praying. We're going to keep praying, and we're going to wait because we know that God is going to help us. We just don't know when. But on the day of Pentecost... Fifty days after Jesus was resurrected, things would change. The church would change, and they would change the world. And I'm not overstating it. I'm not exaggerating. They literally would change the world because of the events that would happen on this one day in the middle of June, the day of Pentecost. This was a festival day in Jerusalem. This was the day that they would celebrate the end of the harvest. So they would bring their grain and they would, they would uh, give it to the Lord as a tithe. They'd bring their offering. They'd bring all this stuff as a, a worship to God for what he's done, how he brought the harvest. We're told in this passage that there were people from every nation in the world, every nation in the known world. There were Jews living all over that would come back to Jerusalem with their offering, with their grain to praise the Lord, to worship him. 
They had their own languages, they had their own cultures, but they were Jewish, and they came back to Jerusalem on this very special day. Imagine you were there. You're in Jerusalem. It's exciting. It's a festival day. There's so many people, but it's also frustrating because the streets are packed. Some people are going too slow. Some are being reckless and going too fast. There's just so many people. But that was a day that the Holy Spirit would come and fill the church. That the church would experience power like it had never experienced before. It all happened on this day in Jerusalem about 9 o'clock in the morning. So they had been gathering. They'd been praying. They restructured they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They, were, uh, they had a practice of baptism. But they were just missing one thing, one last key that would change everything, and that was the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit would come. Today we're going to talk about this famous passage, Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church, where the, the day the church came alive. We're going to see what the Holy Spirit does and what difference it makes, not only way back then at the beginning, but how the Holy Spirit changes us even today, how the Holy Spirit directs our church, and how a church filled with the Holy Spirit will make an incredible impact in the mission that God has called us to do. So today we'll focus on this. We'll look at what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced. We'll talk about the sound, the fire, the language, all these things that we find in this passage. And we'll see today that the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, He fills the church. He brings the church life. He brings the church a mission. And He brings the church courage and joy. That's what a Spirit-filled church looks like. And according to Acts chapter 2. So let's look and see what we have for us, what the Lord has for us, what we need to hear today. The first thing, though, is the Spirit makes a church alive. The Spirit is the one that brings life to the church. God breathes into, God, into His people to give them life. Look at verse 1 and 2. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. Remember, that's all this 120, the disciples, the followers of, of Jesus, the, uh, Jesus' mom, his, his brothers, and other people that had been with them. They were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So imagine being there. You're just enjoying the morning. You're just sitting there hanging out. And this sound, like a violent blowing wind, comes from heaven and fills this room. It's not, stay with me, it sounds like a wind. It's not the wind. The wind didn't come and just like knock off hats and mess up people's hair and that kind of thing. It was the sound, like a violent wind. And I happen to know what that sound like, what sounds like, and I think I, think I do. And I'll be a little bit embarrassed uh, for a second, but this is what it sounded like. Right, but much louder and much more violent. But that was the sound they heard. Why do I say that? Well, here's why. Uh, this is a little bit of Bible teaching for, for all of you. When you're reading the Bible and you're just kind of going through and you stop and you see something that just stands out, something that sounds like amazing or wonderful or unbelievable, what are you supposed to do? You just say, oh, that's crazy. No, you say, here's what you're supposed to do. You ask this question, what does that remind me of? Where have I heard that before? 
See, the Bible is not like a bunch of just little moralistic stories that are all just kind of stacked together in here. No, the Bible is full of these amazing stories that are all intertwined. They're all connected. So when we read this story in Acts chapter 2 and it says, that sounds amazing, sounds wonderful, sounds crazy. What we need to think is like, where have we heard that before? Is there anywhere in Scripture that talks about that, that same thing? And all of you, you guys are, are great Bible study uh, uh, students of the Bible, and you're, I'm sure you're thinking of several different occasions. But if you're not, I'm going to help you get there, okay? Because it's important that what we see here has some roots that go way back into Scriptures. So what does that remind you? When you hear the word breath, the sound, the sound of a wind. By the way, wind and breath is the same word here in this passage, okay? It's the same word. When you hear that, what do you think of? Many of you just went back to Genesis chapter 2, didn't you? Right? Some of you did. All right, Genesis chapter 2. It's when God created the world, right? He created the world. And then in Genesis chapter 2, it kind of steps, it kind of zooms in and says, here's what it looked like. And there's, in chapter 2, verse 7, it says this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Adam, right? He formed him from the dust of the ground. And Adam is laying there on the ground, looks like a man, but there's no life in him. But then this happens. It says, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. He was formed. He was laying there. He looked like a man, but he had no life. Until God breathed, breathed into his life, and he, he came alive. It's the first time we see that concept of God breathing and bringing life. We see it in another place, Ezekiel 37. Here it's much, many years later, Israel is in exile. They are spread out around the world. They had been in exile for a long time. Their hope of going back to Jerusalem was almost just void. It was almost gone. They felt like they were just hanging on. Maybe some of them felt like they were dead. And, and God takes the prophet Ezekiel, and in a vision, he takes him to this valley, and in this valley, there's bones, just bones everywhere. Not buried, they're just laying there. And he says to Ezekiel, he says, how in the world are these, gonna, these bones going to come back to life? Is there any hope? And Ezekiel's like, I don't know how to answer that. Only you know, Lord. Good answer. But then he says, this is how they're going to come back to life. We're going to breathe on them. In Ezekiel 37, verse 9 it says, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. And they came to life, and they stood on their feet, a vast army. Now, just to make note, this is a vision. This didn't really happen. This isn't some zombie apocalypse that's happening, right? But it's a vision of how life comes back, that God is going to breathe into Israel and bring them back to life. This is where he gives them, the, takes away the heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. Where he says, you're going to live again. You're going to be a vast army under David, which is a reference to Jesus. You're going to live again. He breathes on them and they come to life. So we see two in the Old Testament, but there's one just before this in the New Testament too. A beautiful passage that you might, you've probably heard, you've read, but maybe you're not thinking of it right now. But it's when Jesus, he comes back to life after his death, 
then his burial and his resurrection. And remember when he goes into the room and there's the apostles in there, all of them but Thomas. Thomas is out, I don't know, shopping or <laughs> getting food, whatever. And he comes in and he shows them his hands and he shows them his side. And remember what he says. He says, and peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you, right? I'm sending you where? To the ends of the earth. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You see this, when, when they are sitting in this room and all of a sudden this sound like this wind comes in, it's not just this crazy, that's a good idea. It's because it, it's the breath of God that we've seen in Scripture. And the breath of God is coming into this church and is breathing on them and giving them life. You might say, well, didn't they they already have life? I mean, they were already worshiping, they were praying. Eh, Maybe, yeah. It's kind of like there's different kinds of breaths. There's, you know, when you go to the hospital and you you visit someone who's really struggling, they're just holding on to life and their breath is short and shallow. Contrast that with an Olympic runner who's running the 400. He's coming around that last stretch and just feeling, filling his or her lungs with air gulping in this air, and that's the difference, and that's, that's what has happened. The Holy Spirit is coming and filling them, filling their lives with air, filling them with life. So what do we do with that? Many, church, many times churches struggle with this. They, they struggle with relevance. They're, they're struggling to kind of find their purpose, and, and what do they do? When things aren't working, they, they, they go to innovation, there's a book called When the Church Stops Working by Andrew Root. And he says, he talks about this. He says, here's the, the problem. When churches, you know, aren't working, you know, people aren't coming and they're not impacting people, they're not fulfilling their mission. He says, here's what many churches do. They follow the model of business. Because in business, when things aren't working, here's what they do. Let's innovate. Let's get creative. Let's rebrand. Let's restructure. And that works for business. But it's not in the church. Because here's what happens. Churches say things aren't working, so let's go to a conference and let's find out what other churches are doing and then we'll do the same thing. Let's buy their programs and let's put it on in here in our church because it's working there, it should work here. They innovate or they try to be too creative. But what he says in this book is they, what we need to do is go back to what the disciples did. They went back, they waited, they prayed, they asked for the Spirit to come and give them that life and give them that, uh, those ideas, give them the power that they need to reach the people around them. So here, the, the church, kind of struggling, what do we do? How do we move forward? They waited, the Spirit came, filled them with life, gave them breath. What's it look like? What's it look like when the church is filled with, with uh, the Holy Spirit, when it's moving on mission? Uh, just to skip a little bit ahead, this is actually in next week's sermon, but I'll just spend a, a, just a minute on it. Peter's going to get up, and he's going to respond to the crowd, and he's going to preach the, one of the greatest sermons ever. And this is what he says. He quotes from the book of Joel, but he says this, in the last days, right, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So here it is. He's like, this is the last days. The spirit is now here. And here's what happens. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Here's what he means. This is amazing stuff, really. He says, your young people, your young men and women, they're going to prophesy. 
What that means is they're going to hear what God has to say, and they're going to speak it to other people. They're going to share the gospel. They're going to take this message of the gospel, and they're going to speak boldly to people in their culture, in their community. Our young people are going to do that. When the Spirit is in the church, when the Spirit is alive, when we're filled with the Spirit, our people are going to talk about the things of God. They're going to talk about the gospel. And he says this, the next thing, your young men are going to see visions. They're going to see visions. They're going to see the purpose in life. I mean, so many of our young people, they just wander. They're wandering around. They're trying this and that, and they're just kind of meandering through life, and then they find their way back home to their parents' home, and they say, let's start all over again and figure this out. And he says, not here. In the church where the Spirit is, is filling it, your young people are going to see visions. They're going to see their mission. They're going to see their purpose, their value in life. They're going to know that God has called them to serve. And they're going to go out and serve and follow the Lord. They're going to prophesy. They're going to see visions. And then it says, your old people are going to, are going to dream dreams. I, this is really the work of the Spirit. It means your seniors, the people that literally built this church, some of the people that are older, they're going to dream dreams. They're going to see the future. And they're going to cheerlead on this next generation. They're going to say, hey, things aren't exactly the way it used to be. We don't sing the songs that we used to sing. But God is at work, and he's using you. So keep prophesying. Keep seeing visions. Go get it. The old people in the church are become the cheerleaders. And their excitement is fueling the church. That's what I see a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. People can't help but share the good news. I talked to somebody this week, somebody in our church who was like just saying the same thing. They're like, I used to kind of keep quiet with my family about things of faith, but now I keep talking, right? Because the Lord is telling me all these things and he's filling me and I, I can't keep it to myself. I have to share it. That's what it looks like when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We share. We have visions. We have purpose. We, we, we cheer people on. We need this. We need this today. Not only our church, all churches. Be filled with the Spirit to be alive. And that's what the Spirit does. He brings life into the church. Another thing he does, the Spirit calls the church into a new mission. He gives us a new mission. He commissions his people for ministry. Look at verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. You kind of get the feeling as you're reading these last couple of verses that it's very hard to explain, right? We heard this sound that sounded like a violent wind that came from heaven. We saw this pillar of fire that seemed to be like these tongues of fire, and then it separated and it went on people. Really hard to explain. Kind of like a, maybe a, you see like a school of fish that are kind of swimming, swimming, and you're like, is that one thing or is that a lot of things? But how they pictured it they said it was like out of heaven came into this room this pillar of fire that had all these little little tongues of fire and then that separated and went on people now if if right now this pillar of fire came down right here in the middle what would we do all right we would get out of it calmly get out of here find your exits please move all right that'd be the appropriate thing to do 
But for them, for whatever reason, they just sat there and they saw this. They saw this pillar come down and they're watching this fire and it's going around and then it separates. And instead of running and fleeing, they just, the, they just sat there and the fire came and kind of just sat on their, their heads. Crazy. But now, what did I just teach you? What did you learn already today? When you read something that sounds crazy, what do you do? Where have we heard that before? What does that remind us of? Why fire? Well, we know there's a pillar of fire that when, G- when, when Moses took the Israelites out of, out of Egypt, right on the Exodus, there was a, a pillar of cloud by day, which was God, and at night, it was a pillar of what? Fire. So it was leading them. But now, so we already know there's some connections. There's many others as well, right? But where have you heard about something that was on fire that didn't burn up? All right, you think, all right, okay, I hear it. I got you. I got you, Moses, in the burning bush, right, in, in, in Exodus chapter 3. Moses, at this point, he's just, he's enjoying his life as a shepherd, all right? He's left Egypt behind. He is enjoying his life as a shepherd, and he's with his sheep, and all of a sudden, he sees this bush that's on fire, and it stays on fire. It doesn't burn up. And so he says, I'm going to go investigate this. I'm going to go look at this bush that's on fire that's not burning up. And as he gets closer, remember what happens. God speaks to him, says, Moses, Moses, stop. Take off your sandals because the place that you're standing on is holy ground. So here's a, a bush that's not burning up, and he is equating God is there. It's holy ground. And what happens in that story, but Moses gets commissioned for a new purpose. He has a new mission. Instead of taking care of sheep in the desert and leading them to pasture and water, God's saying, I'm going to make you a shepherd of my people. You're going to go to Egypt and you're going to take them out of Egypt through the desert and into the promised land. You're going to lead them to places with food and water. I'm going to provide those things. But you are going to have a new mission. You're going to lead my people to the promised land. And so back in Acts chapter 3, we see this fire that comes down, that lands on people, doesn't burn up their hair, but just sits there. And it's a symbol of this new, new mission that the church has. See, back then, they would sit in the temple. Everything was around the temple. Everybody would come from the ends of the earth, where? To the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the middle of everything happened. But now he's saying, I'm going to send you where? To the ends of the earth. I have a new mission for you. I'm breathing life into you. I put my spirit on you. You have a new purpose. To go proclaim the gospel of Jesus. To go proclaim the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. The spirit comes upon them. You might think, as I was thinking about this, like, why are there 120? Why, why not just one or 12? I mean, you have Peter who Jesus says, hey, on you, I'm going to build this church. So wouldn't you think the pillar would just move right over to Peter? That would be, ooh, amazing, Peter, you're on fire, you're anointed, and all that. Or maybe, you know, the 12 dis- disciples too, that would be good. But it wasn't. It was on all of them. Because remember what Peter said from that prophecy in Joel, in the last days, the Spirit is going to come on all my people. 
the young, the old, the women, the men. He says, even on my servants. It's on all people. We all have this mission. It's not just one person anymore. It's all of us. Moses was the one person who went up on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was on fire, right? It was full of smoke. And, and it was when they got the Ten Commandments and the Israelites were like, we ain't going up there. Moses, you can go, but we're not doing it. But now it's on everyone. The fire comes on each person. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You have a purpose, a mission. God has made you alive. He's made you part of this church. We all have a mission to go spread the word of God, to take it to the ends of the earth, not just to sit here and wait for people to come to us, but to take that message out at school, at work, in the neighborhood, in the family, to show them the great love of God. The Spirit makes the church alive. The Spirit gives the church a new mission. And the last one, the Spirit fills the church with courage and joy. One of the main features of being filled with the Spirit is this courage and joy. The courage to do things that they have never imagined, they never thought about, but have it with joy in their hearts. Look at verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So now they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Amazed and perplexed, I'll skip to verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. All right, I'm going to talk about these two things, language and wine. All right. But it starts here that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And throughout the, the, the book of Acts, which we were going to get to, so we're, as we read this, this phrase is going to come up several times, filled with the Holy Spirit. And you're going to see when Peter and John are filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak like, like prophets, right? Not timid and ashamed, but they speak with boldness. The church is going to pray for boldness, and it's going to say they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went out with, with, with being bold and full of joy. We're going to see that through uh, Paul and onwards, all through the book. And when it talks about being filled with the Spirit, you see these words, courage and joy, boldness. But here they are being filled with the Holy Spirit, and that God has done something amazing. He gave them a special language to speak. Right, and I'm not talking, like some of us, when we hear the word tongues, we think about, uh, like in the Pentecostal movement, like a tongue, uh, a language that nobody understands, that we have to in interpret. That's not the situation here. That's a good study, good to think about. But this, this is that they, were, they knew other languages. And remember, why is this important? Because there's people from where? Every nation in the known world is here. My guess is they're... Their Hebrew wasn't as good as their other language. But now, they're here. They, they see these Galileans speaking in their language. Remember, the Galileans, they're like, they're like country folk, right? They're not the sophisticated city people. It'd be like, remember Duck Dynasty? Like Uncle Sai speaking like perfect Mandarin. You're like, what? how does that? Like, this doesn't fit. But that's what was happening. They hear these people. They see they're Galileans. They're speaking like perfect other languages, the perfect dialect. And it doesn't say this, but I imagine this is what happens, that they found people that spoke their language and kind of motioned to their friends that come over, and there's probably these small, 120 small groups throughout the city proclaiming the gospel in their language that they can understand. 
that really is amazing. And some of you are thinking, that's so amazing. Where have I heard that before, right? That's what you're thinking. And many of you are thinking, I know, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, right? Remember that story? The, the, the earth was full of people. They had one language, and they said, we are going to build our own kingdom. We are not going to enjoy God's kingdom and submit to him. We are going to be the kings. We're going to create our own kingdom. We're going to build our own tower that reaches to heaven, and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And God came down and says, not so fast. And what did he do? Remember that story? They woke up in the morning and they were all spoke a different language. He confused them. He gave them languages. I don't know how many. 120? I don't know. But in the morning they woke up and instead of communicating with each other about how to build bricks and things like that that they were doing, now they couldn't understand each other. And it says they kind of grouped each other with these, you know, they found others that spoke that same language. They said, I don't know what happened to these people. They're crazy. They've gone mad. But it says what? They dispersed. Where? Around the earth. North, south, east, and west. They went around the earth. They built their own little kingdoms in rebellion against God, violent and all that, which we see the rest of Genesis tell us. But it's these people now that were confused and scattered find themselves, years later, back in Jerusalem. They're here, and now instead of confusion, they get clarity. God equipped these disciples, this church, to be able to speak their language. They share the gospel, and we're told that that day, 3,000 people came to know Christ. 3,000 people came to know Christ. And there's some significance about that. There's a couple things that stand out to me as I'm, I'm reading that. Why this is important. One, that on the day that the church came alive, it came alive to all the nations, to all the languages. Not just one person, not just one language or one culture, to all of them. That way, there's no culture that can say, we got it first. We were there first. We're more important. And by the way, the English church wasn't there, <laughs> okay? So for those of us who tend to think like, oh, in heaven we're going to speak English or, you know, we're the most important, you know, church in the world, like, no, 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 no. That, that is a complete the opposite. That the church around the world, they were all there. Everybody's important. Every church our brothers and sisters in every culture and every church, they're important. There's no place in the church for us to be more important for that Christian nationalism or anything like that. Because the church in India, the church in Pakistan, the church in Asia, Europe, we're all there. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all important. Another thing is on the very first day, we saw a multi-ethnic church come to being Everyone, every nation, every tribe, every tongue was there. The church is not just one culture, it's multi-ethnic. And the third thing we see is that's where the church spread. I'm sure some of those 3,000 stayed in Jerusalem, but a lot of them went back home. And they took this message of the gospel. They were some of the first missionaries in their culture, in their country, where they took the gospel and they planted seeds. So years later, when Paul and Peter and the other apostles go out into the world and take the message, the seed has already been sown. 
In Babel, he was trying to slow down what they were doing, but now he's speeding it up. He's saying, I'm giving you the message. I'm giving the gospel. Now take it. Where? To the ends of the earth. So when we look at this passage, it's full of these amazing stories. Well, I didn't even talk about the wine, right? Remember, they were being made fun of. People were making fun of them and saying, oh, man, these people, they're just drunk. Right? Why would they say that? Here's, here's what I think. When, when someone's drunk, they lose their inhibitions, right? The kind of the filters that say you probably shouldn't say that out loud are the things you say, right? You, you kind of, you laugh a little bit. You probably, your volume is a little bit too high, things like that. And so when the people walking by, they see them, they're like, these people are loud. They're laughing. They're giddy. They're talking about this guy who died, who's back to life. Their only explanation was they're drunk. But what they were doing is they were proclaiming the gospel and they were doing it with joy. So the church that is full of the Holy Spirit is not just courageous, but it's full of joy. There's happiness. There's delight in it. Friends, when we look at this passage, yeah, there's amazing stories in these crazy things. There's the sound of the wind, the breath, the fire, the languages, all of that kind of stuff. But all of that is showing what a church looks like that is full of the Holy Spirit. It's alive. It knows its mission. It knows its purpose. And it's courageously doing it. Courageously doing it with joy. Friends, that's what I desire. That's why I want for our church to be a church that's alive. A church that's on mission. A church that's making a difference. That's full of courage. That's, that's full of you being courageous and joyful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to reach our mission. That's how we're going to make a kingdom impact in Anaheim. That's how you're going to make a kingdom impact in your families, in your school, at your work, in your neighborhoods, in your communities. When you are walking with the Spirit, when you're full of the Spirit, God will use you and do amazing things. Amazing things. Now, as I end, before I go, how do we fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit? This is a great question, right? How do we do that? All right? So you say, I want to do that. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want God's breath on me. What do I do? Well, I'd say the sad part is there's no easy answer. There's no quick answer. There's no, like, three steps. If you do this, this, and this, then you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't get that in Scripture. But here's a couple of things. I would say this, the more that you give your life to Jesus, the more you're going to experience the Spirit. The more that you give your life to Him, the more you're going to experience Him. See, our lives are full of things. Some of them are good things, but some of them are worldly things. And it's like when you're packed, when you're full, you can't take anything in. When your car is jam-packed, you know, full of you're going on a trip. You can't take anything more unless you take stuff out. Part of that is our confession, just confessing sins. We as a culture, we don't do that very often. We don't spend time confessing our sins until we really have the big one, and then we're like, okay, now I have to confess. But this is part of our daily rhythm. Like We, we do sin on a regular basis, 
And so wouldn't it be natural that we bring those things, we unload them, we put them at the, the cross and say, Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I don't want those things in my life. I want to be led. I want to hear the Holy Spirit. I want to feel the Spirit. And I need to get rid of those things. And then it's just, what else can I unload? The fear, the worry, the anxiety, those things that come. Lord, I need to continue to give those things to you so that I can be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the more that we give our hearts to the Lord, the more that he's going to fill us with the Holy Spirit. The other thing, as I say, that we need to fix our gaze on Jesus. To look to him daily and throughout the day. First thing in the morning, the last thing at night, and throughout the day, focusing on Jesus. Now, we're not going to do this perfectly, but we have to look at him. He is the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that shows us what it looks like to live in unity with God, to live in the power of the Spirit. And so we look to Jesus. We talk with him. We worship him. Paul writes in Galatians 5, he, he writes like four different ways He says this. He says we need to walk with the Holy Spirit, be led by the Holy Spirit, live with the Holy Spirit, and follow the Holy Spirit. He's the one that takes our attention, putting our eyes on him and nothing else. Charles Spurgeon said this once. He said, I looked at Christ and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove and the dove flew away. He went on to explain. He says, when I looked at Jesus, that's when the fruit of the Spirit came, the peace and joy and love and kindness. But when I looked to how I can be kind, how I can be more patient, how I can be more peaceful, then it all went away. That's when I realized I'm not kind, I'm not loving, I'm not at peace. So what do I do? I look to Jesus. I find my worth my value in him and him alone and nothing else. Guys, we look to the world. We look to others. We look to other churches. We look to other businesses. We look to all these things. What does a spirit-filled church do? It looks to Jesus. Find our life, our mission, our courage, and our joy in him and him alone. Amen.